Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, it's a, it's a three book kind of day, so this should be good. Um, awesome. All right. Well, how's everyone doing today? Good. Awesome. Life's going perfect. Nothing's going wrong. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So I, I want to kind of just uh, point at something p- particular today and just kind of do some circles around it. Just walk, walk around this, this kind of one idea and just to kind of explore it together, if that's okay with you guys. Um, so if not, we can just do some jokes and limericks and <laughs> you know, go from there. Um, uh, so what are the two greatest commandments? <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> waiting for the bait and switch and saying the answer they know. Well, you know, someone asked, uh, a lawyer, in fact, asked Jesus this very question one time, uh, and Jesus answered. And I I was surprised, because a lot of times Jesus answers, like, mysteriously, and he's like, you know, uh, it's like, hey, you know, Jesus, uh, what what is this like? And he's like, I imagine a dove descending from the branch of a tree, you know. And (laughs) in this one, he just gave a straight answer. He said, you know, love the Lord thy God with all all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, depending on which version you're reading. Um, And the Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Which is great. He gave a straight answer to say, hey, here's, here's, here's number one, here's number two. Right, right, right up front. And so we, we know that we're supposed to love, right? Uh, apparently, it is the primary commandment of our entire belief system. Apparently. That's, that's, what, that's how I interpret Jesus saying what the most important commandment is. Um, so, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Now, I, I think we could all give an answer, uh, but whatever answer we give, inevitably, would probably uh, be, be easily, have, have holes easily pointed out in it by, by uh, perhaps one of those very neighbors that we're discussing, right? Like, okay, is, is love always being kind? Is love uh, always helping someone out who needs help? Uh, well, is love um, always making someone feel welcome, making someone feel accepted, making someone feel valued? Uh, it would probably be easy to say, yes, all of those things are love, are loving, but then you have these extreme cases, right? You have, well, well, gosh, okay, if love is helping other people out, what if I'm helping people out beyond my capacity and, and harming my own life, harming my own uh, ability to take care of my own life and... Uh, you know, harming my time with my family, all these other things. Oh no, you know, we need some boundaries. But so then, but but how, how much is too much, and to to what extent? Where, where do I put those boundaries? Right. If love is always being kind, then what happens if someone is 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 mean to me? You know, what if what if someone what if someone is is just a real jerk? You know, what if what if someone is truly a? I heard applause on that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Um, what if, what if someone is, is, uh, you know, fully against everything that I believe in? Am I supposed to be kind to them? And what does it mean to be kind when someone is, is fully disagreeing or I fully disagree with what someone is doing, right? It's tricky. It's tricky. 
So I'm not gonna answer how to do all of that because I, I think we maybe sometimes get too stuck into the how and uh, maybe arguing either inside ourselves or with one another about the, the finer points of the how. And I, I wanna spend a little bit more time trying to uh, recognize, uh, this is kind of giving away a bit of the ending, try to recognize our complete inability to solve this equation apart from God's grace. <laughs> And by grace, I don't mean God's niceness. I mean the, the, the practical operational power of God invading our lives. Does that, does that make sense? So uh, flip you, uh, flip, flip you, uh, flip, <laughs> flip, flip ye to uh, Luke uh, 10. <laughs> uh, New King James folks will be very happy about, or Old King James, I guess, uh, will be happy about that. Um, Luke, uh, Luke 10, we're gonna go to Luke 10. Um, we're going to start uh, at verse 25, and I like starting at verse 25 in this particular passage because for some reason it makes me laugh. Um, I use the NASB 2020, which sounds like a joke, but that's just when they happen to release that. Because uh, 2020 is always like a punchline these days. I don't know. Anyway, um, uh, the new, newest version of the NASB, I'm a big fan of it. And I love the way that they phrase this because it sounds like a joke, even though it's not. Uh, Luke 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer. <laughs> It sounds funny to me. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so this is right after Jesus uh, sends out the 72. They come back. They're sharing testimonies about all the amazing things. And this is where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And, you know, that was awesome. But, hey, you shouldn't rejoice in that. You should rejoice in the fact that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They're sharing the testimonies. This is a great time. And he's, you know, encouraging them, talking about how they're, they're seeing the kingdom of God. And, oh, man, the prophets just, you know, wish they could have seen the, this day that you're seeing. This is so awesome. And then, behold, a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to imagine him jumping out of the bushes. Uh, <laughs> and, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, interestingly, I, there's no official association here, but if the, the other time Jesus brings up this subject, or, the, or rather this subject gets brought up to Jesus, is in Matthew. Um, it is also by a lawyer who is asking, what is the most important commandment? I'd like to imagine this the same lawyer. Uh, there's no evidence of that. I don't know how many lawyers there were back then, but I'd like to imagine it's the same one. Because if it is, it's kind of fun because Jesus asks him the question, uh, you know, perhaps because he had already given him the answer last time. So verse 27, and he, the lawyer, answered, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said, uh, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Uh, but wanting to justify himself, uh, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now what follows is, is probably in the top two or three of the most famous of Jesus' parables. Um, I, I certainly heard it a lot growing up in church. Uh, it is the, the parable that is uh, typically called the uh, Good Samaritan. You familiar with the story? All right, I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, so we're going to go through it relatively quickly. It's a short one, but I just want to read it so it's uh, fresh, fresh in our minds. And so, again, awesome testimonies happen. Lawyer gets up, jumps out of the bushes, asks a question, and <laughs> says, what is written? You know, it says, you know, hey, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, how do you read it? You know, what should I do in the hair in life? And then um, love 
repeats these two commandments, and then he has this caveat of who is my neighbor. Basically, how, how far am I supposed to go? Uh, it's kind of answering one of these questions, or, or at least you know, walking around it. And so, verse 30 of Luke 10. Jesus replied and said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Which is very rude. Um, and, <laughs> and by coincidence, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, which would probably weird me out if someone did that, if I was hurt, but uh, it was actually a good idea back then. Um, and he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, a decent amount of money, and more than would likely be enough to cover his, uh, his stay there. And gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed compassion to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Now, some of this may be familiar to you, so if this is a review, um, uh, hopefully it's a, it's a good review. But this, this is perhaps one of the more um, uh, challenging parables uh, if you understand a bit of the cultural context of what Jesus is saying here. Um, so again, picture this, you know, we're back in biblical times. There's not like uh, public hospitals. Like here, if you got beat up by robbers, what would someone do who was helping you out? Hopefully they'd pick you up, take you to the emergency room, right? All right, they didn't have an emergency room. That's, that's not something that existed in this time. There maybe were a few people who would be considered medical, uh, in the medical field, but those were mostly in very big cities. I mean, it was mostly uh, people like priests or, or other folks who had, uh, or like local kind of village folks or elders that, that knew some medicine or knew some ways to take care of people. And so getting beat up and getting hurt real badly is a much scarier thing than, than even now, even though this would be very scary if this happened to us now. And so this guy is in a bad way, like beat up and you can't go somewhere. You know, if you ever watch those documentaries about people who like, you know, go on these crazy hikes out into the mountains all by themselves and they fall down and get their arms stuck in, a, you know, in between two rocks or break a leg or something like that. It's harrowing because you, you, if your legs aren't working, it's difficult to go somewhere. Um, especially when you don't have help. So, so this guy's in a precarious situation. And this, this would be like a... You would always be worried about this happening if you were traveling alone. This is like the, the thing you're always worried about any time uh, you'd go out. So this would be very relatable to folks. Priests passed by. The priests were, um, you know, th these were uh, the, the people who were meant to carry out all of the priestly duties, the sacrifices, the, the prayers. They were the, these, these ministers of, of God's presence. Now, you may have heard people teach about this before, that it would have been a violation of that priest's duties, very likely, to touch someone who was covered in blood. Um, they would have to do a full ceremonial washing. They wouldn't be able to do their duties for the rest of the day. So it's not necessarily a full-on, like, this guy is just a total jerk priest and, you know, walking. I'm sorry if the word jerk is offensive to you. It's nicer than other ones you can use. Um, the... He... It would have cost him something 
to touch the person. It would have messed up his plans. It would have messed up his duties for, for that day. You know, so there's that. Um, the Levites were essentially like the, uh, the, the worship leaders. Like they, they had kind of more wider tasks than that, but they were the worship leaders. They were the guards at the, at the temple or at sacred places. They were this uh, tribe within Hebrew culture that had dedicated their life to the service of, of God's presence and his purposes. And they uh, actually received kind of tithes and, and blessings from the other tribes to be able to support them in their ability to do that. And so they also had sacred duties, and those sacred duties would have likely been messed up by taking the time and touching someone who was ceremonially unclean and all that stuff. And so a, a priest, someone who's more or less uh, somewhat similar to the way we think of a pastor, and a Levite, someone who is somewhat similar to what we think of as a worship leader. So I walk by you and Vanessa walks by you, which is probably hard to imagine because I think Vanessa would just throw you, throw you on her back and <laughs> carry you right out of there. Um, so then a Samaritan comes by. Now, okay, we don't have time to get into all the details, uh, but the Samaritans were a people that the, the Jews of this time did not like at all. And the reason for this was that these were Jewish people who had intermarried with the Assyrians during their, um, uh, the Hebrew people's uh, exile in Assyria. So they had intermarried with the Assyrians and they had adjusted their religion, their belief system to accommodate some of the beliefs of the Assyrians. And so they had a slightly modified version of the Torah that they used and practiced uh, a different version of uh, the, the Jewish religion. Does that, does that make sense? Now, this was something that was deeply offensive to Jewish people at the time. This is, this, like they wouldn't eat at the same restaurant where, Sarah, uh, where Samaritans had been. And so this was a, an intense uh, racial tension, and this was an intense uh, religious tension. Um, this is, these people are different from us, and they feel like traitors, and they, uh, you know, they are uh, specifically um, uh, not following the, the way of the Lord, the way that we are. They have, they have modified the gospel to follow the times, you know, to follow the culture that they were in, in Assyria. So it would be, so this is a very challenging statement because one way that this parable may have been interpreted at the time, because you got this lawyer, he's coming up and he's saying, what are the two, you know, how, how, do, how, do, you get, how do you get saved? And he said, hey, well, what are the two, two commandments? Or what are, the, what are the most important commandments? And he re repeats those back. And then says, well, who's my neighbor? So what, one way of looking at what Jesus was saying here is I'm showing you this picture of what love your neighbor looks like. I'm adjusting your perspective from, hey, who is my neighbor to, hey, who was being the neighbor? Who is, who is choosing to put themselves in the position of a neighbor? And also, I'm challenging you extra by saying, how, how strong is your belief in what you study and what you teach if people who follow a false version of this doctrine are doing it better than you are. <laughs> to, that was what Jesus is suggesting by showing a priest and a Levite not actually capture the heart of the belief system they were following and walking by this person. Or as a Samaritan who would be like a, 
liberal Christian maybe, uh, or whatever name you want to put in that version. That's kind of a similar, uh, you know, there's a lot more dynamics going on, but it's a a similar kind of version, a a Mormon, whatever kind of person who is a, a person who's divergent from the gospel as you know it, is walking out the gospel better than the other two people. Kind of a kind of a challenging parable if you see it in that light, yeah. One that might tempt you into a bit of performance, as this uh, parable often does, you know. And it, it, again, I don't think it's a wrong thing in the sense that we, we obviously this is a good wake up call of, like, oh, we want to make sure that we are loving people the way that God does. We want to make sure that we don't let the minutia of our belief system stop us from actually doing love as we all understand it. Does that make sense? So that's, that's good. But I, I want to just take a minute to just, just invite us into more of this, this picture because for so long, so many of us have been taught the teachings of Jesus from a, almost a purely cognitive and behavioral uh, perspective. You know, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this really challenging set of statements where he said, hey, you've, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Well, I'm telling you, if you even think, uh, think lustfully about someone else, you've committed adultery in your heart. Hey, if you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder. Well, I'm telling you, even if you have hate for someone in your heart, it, it's, it's the same. And so um, if we still maintain this performative response to the gospel, then it looks like Jesus made it way harder. Man, I just, I just didn't have to act on these things. And now, you don't, now I have to even control what's going on in my head. I would like to suggest that Jesus is not raising the, the standard of uh, performance-based behavior. He is showing us that it is impossible to perform. That the only way to change your performance, what comes out of your life, what, what you produce out of your life, is being, by being transformed by his grace, by being in his presence, by, by being loved by him, by receiving a love that we could not generate on our own. Does that make sense? So we do have to be careful when we read things like this that raise the standards of love, because if we do it out of performance, we become that burnt out person who has, to, who has to stop for every single situation, who every one else's crisis is also my crisis, and then we end up harming our family, harming ourselves, now, if we also get too much into the principle and become too much like the, the Levite and the priest in this story, oh, I have sacred duties that I need, uh, you know, uh, that I must attend to. Uh, surely the Lord will send a raven to, uh, you know, feed the... Um, it's, 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 I hesitate to call it a balance because it's not a balance. It's, it's a journey of grace. It's a journey of being transformed by grace again and again and again. Now, in in the time that we have left, I just want to take a minute to explore one way that we can actively engage in receiving grace in this area of love without going after just the performative side, but also being engaged and not passive in, okay, grace is that that this thing where you sit here and wait for it to land on you. Does that that make sense? And so to do this, I want to take just about five minutes to explore a unique facet of human psychology. Um, So I'm gonna ask you another question. Was King David a good guy or a bad guy? 
Because, <laughs> you know, we basically know the story of David, little, little shepherd boy out taking care of his flock, being faithful, being good. He's even out there playing worship music to Jesus. He killed a lion, he killed a bear. That's impressive. We got your classic underdog story of the guy who's, you know, he's, he's not the first choice. He's the, young, he's the younger son, you know, he's not considered for the kingship and he's got a prophetic mandate on his life. This prophet shows up, anoints him with oil. This is all the, the makings, of a, makings of a champion right here. This is great, you know, this is a good, good start. We like this stuff. He handles the Goliath thing really well. He's got wisdom beyond his years, you know, he's, he's serving this king who's, you know, not doing the greatest, a uh, little bit, you know, tormented, playing music for him. He goes, he goes and makes a run for it, you know, runs, runs away as the king's trying to kill him. He has this great, this beautiful underdog story, you know, it's like, oh, this is awesome. He's just getting better. He's getting better. Oh, this guy's, this guy's great. You know, we get a little bit further down the line, you know, and it's like, ah, yeah, you decide not to go to war this one time. You know, this, you know, it's this uh, nice looking lady taking a bath across the street, I guess. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, I should murder her husband. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, indirectly, of course. So, you know, that's a little bit better. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> Psychology. Um, that's, yeah, that's a little bit better. He's indirect, you know. It's more like uh, I just happened to put him in a circumstance where he might get killed, you know. And if, you know, God allows that to happen, then maybe that's uh, just how it's supposed to be, right? Um, and then I'll, you know, of course, sweep. You know, I, I didn't commit, uh, you know, I, I didn't actually, you know, uh, I, I, I went ahead and married that, that woman as well. That's, you know, that's, you know, that through. that's even more of a good guy thing to do, right? <laughs> now, prophet comes up and says, hey, Gives him this beautiful story about sheep and a man who has all the sheep in the world who uh, kills a man, takes a sheep from his own. David somehow does not get this is him until the very end of the story. <laughs> uh, though it seems quite obvious to us, the audience. Now, oh, David, David, you know, so yeah, you know, David's like, you know, kind of trickled down this way as far as the good guy rating. But you know what? He gets confronted by a father in his life and he hears it. He's like, oh, you know what? That's okay. I'm, I'm repenting. I'm, I'm going down to my knees. I'm, I'm you know, fixing this between me and, me and the Lord. Oh, this is great. You know, it's moving back up here. And, you know, you get a little bit further and a lot of David's kids are not really following the Lord, you know, and they keep getting stuck in trees and um, they, that's what, anyway. If you don't know, you should read. It's exciting. Um, and, you know, but his other son is like the wisest guy ever, and that's awesome. But he also just kind of falls away after a little while from the Lord. And so, you know, but, ah, but then later he says, oh, David is a man after my own heart, you know, and he's in the lineage of Jesus. And, yeah, is David a good guy? By our psychological standards, yes, he's a good guy. So why... Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I can't read all of your minds, but when I said, uh, David, <laughs> I was just, anyway, I'm just saying that. Anyway, um, it's not implying anything. The, <laughs> David, David, we're sticking with David, okay. Um, you know, we can look at the story of Gideon, you know, who uh, is hiding in the wine press. That's kind of a, we don't like cowards, so, you know, he's down here a little bit, you know. And, and you know, the Lord shows up, gives him this vision, and he's like, Ugh, and so it's okay, don't like him as much, you know. And then, you know, all this stuff goes on. And then, uh, you know, he comes, comes back up here and with, you know, I say, oh, he's putting those signs, put a fleece out. Yeah, we like that a lot, even though God said that was a bad idea. We still repeat that behavior that he uh, talks against uh, for the entirety of his journey with Gideon. 
but that's fine. We like that story though. So it's like, oh, that feels good. I want to do something like that. I want to put out a test before the Lord that said not to test him. Um, and <laughs> Gideon did it and he's fine, right? He's a good guy. He's remembered well in this story. And yeah, God keeps testing him in return uh, after all that test. It gets him all the way down to a few people. But in the end, the story comes out and he, he you know, smashes the pots. Everyone gets scared. Great supernatural ending. Hooray, he had a good ending and he liked God. So yeah, Gideon's a good guy. And so what happens if you take a modern person? You know, I'm not going to do that right now because it's going to be too stressful for all of us. But take any <laughs> modern person and take their actions and move it this way or that way. Right. This is where I want to challenge your psychology a little bit. Chances are, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, that when I said, is David a good guy, you hesitate to answer because you know I'm somehow tricking you. Um, but I imagine that your instinct was, yes, David, good guy. Good character, someone to follow, someone to learn from, someone to look at in a positive light. Yeah? If I said, Jonah, what would your response be? Uh, mostly negative, has a bad ending, probably not someone I should follow an as an example of my life. Yeah? One of the th so the reason you do that is this part of your psychology called in-group, out-group mentality. And in-group, out-group mentality decides where every human being starts on this line before their actions start moving them up or down. I'm not going to get all the way into this. It's worth reading about, though. There's plenty of good uh, reading about it. Uh, it. They did this test where they watched several football games. Uh, and we can conduct this test together at the uh, summer family camp, uh, the fall family camp. Um, and the level of empathy when a player was injured was vastly different when it happened on your team versus the other team. When it was your team, there was often uh, expressions of empathy, of mutual hurt, of, of, of sorrow, of sadness. When it happened on the other team, there was a little bit of joy. <laughs> I hear the conviction in the room. <laughs> Why? Because that's the outgroup. Now, this in-group, out-group theme is something that is built into our psychology. It's meant to keep us safe. It's meant to us, for us to be wary of strangers we meet on the road who might rob us and uh, leave us for a Samaritan to save. You know, um, it's, it's, it is a useful tool. You know, it is, it is something there that is in there designed to keep us safe, to help us recognize our family, our people. But however, like any part of the flesh, when it is not submitted to the spirit, it causes destruction. And we have to be careful because I have watched since I was a little kid in church, Christians, and I'm just gonna go here for a second. I, I've been in church since I was a little kid and I've watched uh, all the adults uh, put every president through this thing of their actions and where that president started on their scale is whether they were in the in-group or whether they were in the out-group. One thing I adore about the Bible is the Bible doesn't do this. 
it doesn't emphasize David's good qualities over his bad qualities. It is brutal with his bad qualities. It is honest. It is straightforward about it. It is, it is, it, and every single character in scripture is, except for Jesus, is flawed, usually to, the, to grave consequence. Usually to grave consequence. And I love the reality that scripture was willing to engage in. And we um, train our psyche and we train our ability to love poorly if we learn to let whether, which group someone is in and where their behavior moves them within that group to determine what level of love we release to that person. Does that make sense? And we know that because you're called to love your neighbor and Jesus uses this extreme example of who a neighbor is. And if that's not good enough, he also said, love your enemies. And so that means love the people who are actively have, a, have an active opposite agenda to you, who, who, who want different things in the world to happen than you want to happen, who, whose goals are, are uh, uh, um, what's the term, uh, who, who are against, you're, you're an, an antagonistic towards your goals. You know, that's, you may not have an enemy that you want to go outside and beat with a baseball bat right now, but you do have a person who, you know, in that classic enemy sense, you know, but you do have people with whom you don't want their plans to come to fruition. Does that make sense? And you're called to love that person. So how do you do that? Well, I want to read a little passage from one of my favorite writers. Uh, his name is Clive Staples. <laughs> Better known as uh, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> That's what the C.S. stands for. <laughs> um, as a side note, this is a great book right now. Um, it's hot, hot off the press, brand new, 60-ish uh, years ago. Um, uh, this particular book by C.S. Lewis uh, called The Weight of Glory, and it's a collection of essays and sermons that he did during World War II. Um, if you want to hear what a, an amazing apostolic father has to say during a very difficult time in the world... Uh, recommend this book very much. So the, the, near the end of his, um, here, I'm going to set this down for a second. Near the end of his uh, first sermon in here, he um, has a statement that I think uh, rings very true to today. Um, so if you would just listen to this, again, uh, this is, uh, you know, 1950s language, so it's a little more flowery and, and pretty, and C.S. Lewis is one of the smartest people on the planet, so he's got a, a dense brain, but I want you to receive the grace just as much as you hear his awesome words. Does that make sense? Now, this is a beautiful message. It's called The Weight of Glory, and it is uh, about him talking about what is glory, what's the purpose of glory, how do I relate to glory, and, and he kind of gets this end part where he's like, and, and what's the point of even talking about this? Like, what practical use does this have today? Um... And so <clears throat> he goes into this. He says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And rather than committing heresy here, he's just using some poetic language. Little g on both of these. <laughs> uh, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as now you meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love, as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, this meaning uh, Christ in the flesh, if you're not familiar with the term. Uh, next, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also, Christ, the glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. So I, I, I don't pretend to know the answer of how to properly love someone. I know, I, we all know how to love people, how to love the person in front of us. And we all have circumstances in our lives, in our friends, looking at our, you know, the entire uh, nation, looking at uh, our Facebook circle or, or Twitter circle or, or, or whomever else, where we, we don't know how to engage with love. But I would suggest that a good place to start is letting the, the burden of acknowledging the glory in God's created children is a good way to start. That if I strive to see people the way that he does, if I strive to see the glory in the person across from me, that that is much more likely to change my behavior than trying to perform according to the teachings of Jesus. Does that make sense? And that's not me at all devaluing the teachings of Jesus. I believe that this is me trying to clarify what Jesus was teaching, what he was driving us to, what he was inviting us into. Um, in, I can't remember if this came out in January or the end of December, but this past December, all, all, every single day for the entire month of December, I had a vision. Um, I shared it in detail in a, in a sermon not, not too long ago. Um, in, in January, I believe. Uh, and every single day I had the same vision, but every single day it involved a different person. And every single day I saw this, um, this uh, mount, we were walking along this path, all of us, everyone. We were walking along this path and up ahead was a mountain. And I knew that this mountain represented the kingdom of God. 
And I knew that this path represented our journey towards it. And I saw every day a person come up to the front. And I saw one person, and I saw people grab on to our, well, so. And on the, on the back of every single person was a list of every single thing that person had ever done wrong. Like stapled to their back, just this uh, list of every, every, every sin, every issue, every failing. Some people walked by and shouted at that person for, for what they had done and who they, and who they were because of it and continued onward. Some people walked alongside these individuals for a little while, but then seeing that they were walking too slowly, pushed forward past them and walked towards the mountain that was ahead. Being, having the destination be more important than the people that meet along the way. I saw another group of people come and put their arm around this person and they were the, the lovey-dovey person, the person who would put kindness first and, and a, protect a feeling of love first. And they pulled that person off the path this way and distracted them. And then I saw the next person come and they were very strict and very boundary oriented and very, bringing a lot of correction. And they were pulling the person off the pathway just as much this other direction. And at the end, I saw Jesus come and put his arm around each person and walk with them. And he walked very slowly with them. If you've ever gone hiking with people before who have a slower stride than you, you know this feeling of walking next to him was like, I, it, it takes twice as much effort to think about walking this slow because I have to adjust my stride just a way that's uncomfortable and doesn't make sense to walk with Jesus with this person. But as they did, I watched the person change as they walked forward. Um, there's a lot of things in, in the world right now that I, I don't feel super excited about, that, that I feel concerned about, that I, that I am trusting the Lord with completely. But if, I, if I'm honest, I, I have concerns. You know, I have, I have concerns for the world that my children are gonna grow up in, you know? As I think, probably every generation has since the, since the beginning of time. But um, I, if I do not learn how to see the glory of God in people, and I do not commit my life to releasing his love to those people, then I have nothing of Christ to offer this generation that stands before me. And so it is hard but it's the hard that is necessary to do the work of the gospel. And I'm gonna throw one more grenade before we uh, make a run for it, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of things that I see as wrong or as potentially wrong and getting potentially wronger. <laughs> um, there was a lot wrong when Jesus showed up. There, read a little bit about what was normal in the Roman Empire. It's behavior that is worse than any of the rumors you've heard about your enemies. <laughs> and it was done openly. <laughs> and the Pharisees and the Sadducees got very offended that Jesus wasn't addressing that. Instead, he talked about this thing called the kingdom. <laughs> And the only thing he really said about the Roman Empire was, yeah, you should pay your taxes. <laughs> if you find something different, let me know. <laughs> now that's offensive. 
because there was so much about the Roman was a pagan empire at that time. It was it was promoting practices that were not healthy. It was taking over the world. It was it was imagine you know imagine you had a foreign country that was running your country, and Jesus said, "Yeah, make sure you pay your taxes to them." That's what was happening. However, Jesus taught the kingdom, led his disciples in love, and Christianity became the national religion of that empire. It took over that empire. <laughs> now, did they do perfectly with it after that? Y you be the judge. <laughs> but I think that would be a lot more effective than a revolt. <laughs> he changed culture with this stuff. So Jesus is not offering this as a distraction. He is not offering this as a minimization. He is not offering that as anything other than the answer to your prayers. And I know that we here at Bethel Atlanta strive to follow his example. Does that mean we do it perfectly? Certainly not. But I do want you to know that everything that we share here or everything that we build is to serve this and to serve what he created because anything else is temporal and anything else is maybe more healthy in response, maybe feels more healthy emotionally, but doesn't necessarily lead us towards the kingdom. Does that, does that make sense? And that's a challenging thing because that is mysterious. And learning to steward that is something that we should approach with fear and trembling because, that, uh, too much time, but rather not enough. Um, but man, Take some time to study even the Bible's uh, uh, exploration of this word love, and you can feel the challenge. You know, most often in the Old Testament, it's this word called hesed, which is a, a very, even to this day, is a word that it's difficult to explain in any other language. It's mysterious. The Greek word agape, which you probably have heard uh, before that was commonly used for, for God's love, is a word that was hardly ever used before its Christian use. And they chose to use it because it is a mysterious word that's hard to define. You know, love has been beaten into a lot of different molds in your mind. And part of receiving the grace, God's grace and receiving the gospel is putting our image of love in his hands and letting it melt down again and recognize what boundaries look like in the context of that love, what response to, to sin, to, to unhealthiness, to, to a nation going this way, a nation going that way, or any direction is. We have to let ourselves be challenged by that because anything else is less than the gospel. And anything less than the gospel is not going to release the change that we want. Does that make sense? Yeah. Awesome. All right. If you want to stone me later, I'll be available over there. Um, <laughs> but if you would just stand up real quick. <laughs> so again, I, I want to invite you guys into just uh, approaching this with all humility. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts, puts it of, like, oh, this, this is a burden that requires humility. Having, having love for people, recognizing that there is reality that people can become this very horrible thing. 
through, through pain, through mistreatment, through their history, through, uh, through unhealthy beliefs, whatever it is, people can become this horrible thing, but they can also become this glorious, beautiful, uh, amazing thing. This, this, they can bear the image of God well and shine with it everywhere they go. And I know as I'm saying this, your mind is feeling the same kind of questions that fill in my mind of like, well, what about this situation? What about that situation? How do you respond to this? How do you respond to that? And I'm humbly saying, I don't know. <laughs> but I know by which standard I'm going to try to figure it out. And I know by which standard I'm going to measure myself and, and measure the results of what I do. And I would like to invite you guys into the same. So Lord, we just, we just humble ourselves in your presence, Lord. We recognize that we all have adjustments to make. Some of us, our understanding of grace has become uh, polluted, has become an, an accommodation of sin, has become an accommodation of darkness, has, has, has actually harmed love. And we've done that very thing that C.S. Lewis talked about and replaced flippancy and, and tolerance for genuine heartfelt love. If that's us, we repent and say that the love that he has is a much higher standard than tolerance. It pushes him to deep, the deep challenge of caring for the sin that's affecting the sinner, of loving so big and so hard, so, so, so deeply that we, that we overflow past that and, can, and still remain uh, uh, tragically hurt by the sin, but also deeply in love with, with the sinner. And Lord, we also recognize that some of us have gone on the other side, that we've become the Pharisee, we've become the Sadducee, we've become the priest, we've become the Levite, who has, who has have become so engrossed in the duties of our station, in the tenets of our belief, that we have fully undermined our ability to recognize love when it's right in front of us. Lord, we repent if we have been any of the people who have, who have been accusatory towards someone's sin list that's, that's on the, their back. We repent if we've been a person who has blasted past them because we're going to the kingdom and whoever can keep up gets to go there too. You know, Lord, that we repent if we've had that attitude. We repent if we have let our love and, and our affection and our unwillingness to engage in the challenge of true, genuine love, let us uh, reinforce and enable someone into a life of destruction. And Lord, again, we repent if we've been on the other side where our strictness, where our focus on the rules, where our focus on, on um, behavior before connection has actually sabotaged people's ability to experience the transformation of the gospel. Wherever we at, and, 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 and even, I know I've probably been every single one of those people at different points in my life. Lord, we just humble ourselves in your presence and say, we need nothing short of your grace to lead us to the perfect expression of your love. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.